the kind of faith it takes to climb out of this boat and then under the crashing waves to step out of my comfort zone into the realm of the unknown where Jesus is and he's holding out his hand but the waves are calling out my name and they laugh at me reminding me of all the times I've tried before and failed the waves they keep on telling me time and time again boy you never win you never win today I wanted to share on truth everybody hath a psalm every man hath a doctrine it says in the Bible it's amazing to me easily persuadable are most people the Bible refers to humans as sheep, and there's a reason for that, because sheep are easily led astray. I wanted to read to you all, first of all, a quote that um, I think is very apropos. We're going to be talking about truth today, and uh, this, is, uh, this is Tozer. This is truth at all costs. In 1 Timothy 1.6, it says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It is doubtful whether we can be Christians in anything unless we are Christians in everything. To obey Christ in one or two or ten instances, and then in fear of consequences to back away and refuse to obey in another, is to cloud our life with the suspicion that we are only fair-weather followers and not true believers at all. To obey when it costs us nothing and refuse when the results are costly is to convict ourselves of moral trifling and gross insincerity. Again, the pastor when facing his congregation on Sunday morning, dare not think of the effect of his sermon may have on his job, his salary, or his future relation to the church. Let him but worry about tomorrow, and he becomes a hireling and no true shepherd of the sheep. No man is a good preacher who is not willing to lay his future on the line every time he expounds the word. He must let his job and his reputation ride on each and every sermon, or he has no right to think that he stands in the prophetic tradition. End quote. Isn't that something? And that shows the commitment that we need to have as Christians when we speak the truth. If you hedge, if you speak the truth, you know, you, you, you speak those things that are socially acceptable, but you shy away from those things that aren't so socially acceptable then you're not a true shepherd, you're a hireling. And I think that's important for us to recognize. So today we're going to talk a little bit about truth. There are many voices in this world, many points of view. There are voices of seduction and pleasure. The world's alluring but false promises of opportunity, influence, financial liberty. Oftentimes we read in magazines, you deserve it. And they, they, uh, the advertisements play on our self-centered sense of entitlement or self-help or self-actualization, enticing us with promises of freedom to live our lives as we choose, live the lives of our dreams. And when I was putting the teaching together this morning, I was thinking of Homer in the Odyssey and the Sirens 
The Cyrenes were those beautiful women who would sing from the rocks, and the sailors would be so entranced by their sounds that they would steer their ship right into the rocks and be destroyed. The voices of selfish pleasure, the world is filled with it. There are other voices of grinding and debilitating voices of despair, discouragement and hopelessness. That voice that whispers in your ear and says that you will never measure up or you are unlovable or you are guilty. There's a big one. You are guilty that that sin in your past has made you guilty and you can never live above it. The voices that tell us that our lives are irrelevant and meaningless, that our sins are insurmountable, or the voice that tells us that there is no God, or that God, though he may be love, can't love somebody like me, that I am the sum total of all my sins. Those are the voices that we hear in the world. And to remedy the misery of these type of words, these accusations, many fall prey to the voices of resentment and indignation. To remedy the misery of these words, many fall prey to the voices of resentment, indignation, defiance, and self-righteousness. We see this in our culture right now. People out destroying things. And why are they destroying them? Because they have voices in their heads that are telling them they're no good and that they need to make their mark on this world. And it usually manifests itself in destruction and misery. You know, I think about the, um, the, the terrorists, the Muslim terrorists, making statements like, we love death more than you love life. You know, these are people who, in the heart of their hearts, wish they had never been born, and they're going to take it out on the world. It's a horror show that we see going on around us in this world. And it's all because of the voice that's whispering in the ear. I think about the false prophecies or, uh, excuse me, false philosophies that we hear today, the identity politics that are being taught in our colleges that tell us that we are nothing more than the sum total of certain attributes such as gender, sex, race, class, sexuality, religion, disability, physical appearance, how nonsensical that I can be defined by my color or my gender, not in the true sense, not in the godly sense I can't. These voices tell us that the more uh, oppressed I am, the more victimized I am, the more entitled I should be. How perverse, how perverse. So there are many voices in this world And all these voices are crying out for our submission. So today we're going to look at the voice of truth, the voice of truth. In the Bible, there's a a Greek word, aletheia, and this means that which is true and which is real, reality as opposed to mythology, what you really are, what the situation really is. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, look in verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Isn't that something? And this is real. This is what is real. That before I was saved, I really was dead in trespasses and sins. And when I got saved, I really was redeemed and made alive in Christ. That at one time, I was living a life of gratifying my sinful natures, my sinful nature and following my desires and my thoughts. But now I, just, I follow a higher calling. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And look in verse 12. It says, we have not received the spirit of the world. What this means is we have not received the spirit of this age. The spirit of this age. But the spirit, and it says who, it should be which, the spirit which is from God, that we, we may understand what God has freely given us. The spirit of this age is a blinding spirit. And many of our churches have fallen into submission to this spirit, this blinding spirit. This spirit is all wrapped up in the causes of man, whether they're political or they're religious. All of them claim the status, the mantle of truthhood or truthfulness. But ultimately, genuine truth is beyond all this. Real truth is supernatural. It transcends ages. It transcends causes and issues. Truth can certainly relate to an age, should relate to an age. But truth will not be dictated by an age. Does that make sense to everybody? Truth is imparted. It's bestowed. It's revealed from above. Truth comes to us from its author, who is God. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about the next Supreme Court justice. And uh, I've talked about this in fellowship before. But if you go to the Supreme Court of the United States, they have these big wooden doors. And on these wooden doors, you have the carving. These are reliefs. And one of the pictures that it shows is Moses, the law giver. And he was receiving his light from above. Isn't that interesting? So it was recognized back at least when they built the building for the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court was reliant upon God's justice, his sense of justice, his truth, and that he would reveal this to them and they would enact it. But we fall prey to the Greeks in our thinking. The Greeks taught that man is the measure of all things. And so the Greeks basically taught that truth is something that comes from man, the mind of man. It does not. Not truth. Not real truth. Real truth comes from God. You don't have to turn there, but in Numbers 23, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Those are rhetorical, of course. Of course not. God is 
true. God is truthful. Now, when God speaks, it's truth. And truth has an eternal quality to it. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because those things are spiritually discerned. The things, the true, the truth of God cannot be grasped by the person who doesn't have the Spirit. They can bask in the blessings of truth, but they can't perceive truth in its essence. When it says in John chapter 1, it says, Jesus Christ came in grace and truth. Look in John chapter 14. John 14. Thomas, in verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth is Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So truth is through Jesus Christ, that that is our access to the Father. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. You know, I've been, uh, I bought one of these uh, books on tape, or uh, what is it, Audible? Uh, it, it was a book, famous book by Nietzsche called Beyond Good and Evil. And I started listening to it, and it's just I mean, I've only gotten a couple of chapters into it, but it's just this pompous rant about truth and how truth is available only to the true philosopher. And he dismisses Christianity and dismisses the Bible um, as a bunch of uh, dogma that's only, you know, spoken by the dogmatists. And I thought that was interesting, right? Here's a man who clearly doesn't know much about the Bible. The Bible talks about the length and breadth and depth and height. This is not dogmatism. So truth is imparted. It's revealed from above. It comes from its author. God reveals truth to the person who is humble to his will and no other. And Jesus Christ is the foundation of truth. The doctrine of the inability of the human mind And the need for divine illumination is so fully developed in the New Testament that it is nothing short of astonishing that we should have gone so far astray about the whole thing. Fundamentalism has stood aloof from the liberal in self-conscious superiority and has on its own part fallen into error, the error of textualism, which is simply orthodoxy without the Holy Ghost. What is textualism? That we become fascinated with the Bible to the point where we start actually worshiping the text. Is the Bible accurate? Absolutely. Amazingly so. But it's not, I mean, it's fascinating to see how a book written over 4,000 years in 66 different books, all come together with one single message. I mean, that's fascinating. But it's the message that counts. (laughs) I think we made some big errors when we started placing 
the Bible researcher in the place that the prophet used to maintain. What did the prophet bring forth? God's message. Greek words are fine, but I speak English. I need God's message in my language. We can't become so fascinated with how we got there. You know, I think about how Jesus wrestled periodically with the scribes. A scribe is a researcher. We kind of miss the point there. Everywhere among conservatives, we find persons who are Bible taught, but not spirit taught. They conceive truth to be something which they can grasp with the mind. If a man holds to fundamentals of the Christian faith, he is told to possess divine truth, but it does not. There is no truth apart from the spirit. The most brilliant intellect may be imbecilic when confronted with the mysteries of God. For a man to understand revealed truth requires an act of God equal to the original act which inspired the text. Does that make sense, everybody? God inspires, he bestows truth upon a man. It's a work of God, right? It says in Philippians that God worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. It says the work that he started in you, he shall continue until the day of Jesus Christ. When God reveals truth to a person, it's not an intellectual thing. It's a spiritual thing. God is revealing truth to you. So you can know the Greek language inside out and the Hebrew language inside out and possibly never even get around to knowing the truth. Conservative Christians in this day are stumbling over this truth. We need to reexamine the whole thing. We need to learn that truth consists not of correct doctrine, but in correct doctrine plus the inward enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. We must declare again the mystery of wisdom from above. A re-preachment of this vital truth could result in a fresh breath from God upon a stale and suffocating orthodoxy. Does everybody understand what orthodoxy means? Do you know what orthodoxy means? Well, orthodoxy means right believing. So the church gets together and they say, okay, we're going to determine our standards of faith. And then they write out their orthodoxy. And people adhere to the orthodoxy. They may have at one time been inspired by the spirit, but people have turned them into a religion. We can't afford to do this anymore. We are over-reliant on scholarship and under-reliant on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. For a man to understand revealed truth requires an act of God equal to the original act that inspired the text that we just got finished reading. So it's this notion of textualism, this idea that we are going to, by our own intellect and our own will, approach to God through truth. It just doesn't work that way. Jeremiah 31, you don't have to turn there, 33 says... This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. That's the intention here, that God writes his truth upon our beings, our hearts. Go to John chapter 16. John 16. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I have much to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you 
what is yet to come. He, the Spirit of Truth, will bring glory to you, to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Isn't that something? That's a wonderful thing. So the purpose of the Spirit is to do what? Teach. <laughs> to teach. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. We should, each one of us, be primarily guided by the Spirit that is within us. I am very thankful that you come to fellowship and listen to me, but I would much prefer that the, that you're listening to the Spirit of God that is within you. Does that make sense to everybody? That that Holy Spirit is teaching you, that God is actually teaching you through that Holy Spirit. That's a more accurate way of saying it. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart, may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power to us who believe that God enlightens you, that he enlightens you, that your truthfulness and your wisdom come from above. You should be spending all kinds of time in the word. But remember, the spirit is within you. It's writing upon your heart. So I don't have to quote chapter and verse to know or to speak the truth, do I? That the truth is in me. Now, of course, what I say is going to line up with the scriptures. But I think about all the times, like Jesus, when he was talking along, uh, walking along, and he says, Behold, the birds of the air, right? Behold, the lilies of the field. Behold, that truth was coming out of him, out of every pore of his body. That it was part of him, because God shone through him, that he was truly a light. We've all heard intellectualized teachings, haven't we? They might tickle the ear, but they leave our souls languishing, don't they? You walk out and you're like, well, that was interesting. But there's this strange hole where, where you know, your heart should have been filled. I, uh, I've referred to these things as concept teachings. You know, you go to them and you hear somebody who will endeavor to teach something They'll go in with the subject matter in mind, and then they'll proof text the Bible in order to put their teaching together, in order to make a point. Now, certainly, I go to teachings and I say, well, you know, I feel like, you know, we have a need in a certain area, and I will, you know, start looking at things regarding that subject matter. But it's always got to be at the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should always have the last word here. Robert Witt and I have talked about this. How many times have we started off with a great teaching in mind? And, you know, a half an hour before fellowship, God says, nope, (laughs) we're going to go a different way. And you go that way or you don't. If you don't go that way, it's it's a good teaching. If you do go that way, it's a great teaching. Does that make sense? And that's this idea of being submissive to this Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that works within you. We certainly need to know doctrine, right? We need to know about, you know, what does the Bible say about the Trinity? Or what does the Bible say about the dead being alive or not alive now? Those are important topics. But 
I don't know how many teachings I heard when I became a new Christian straight out of the Bible tells me so book. And people thought they were doing the right thing and they weren't. Nobody was teaching these people to be reliant on the Holy Spirit that they have within them. Doctrine can become dogma very quickly. And we should all be cautious of that. Right? Remember, the Word of God is what? God breathed. And so should our lives be. So should our lives be. When I speak, I should speak God-breathed words. Right? That's the only way that we're going to see God's blessing in our ministries. We talk about it, the word fitly spoken. The word fitly spoken. Right? The word that just meets the need at the moment. You can't do that if all you talk about is dogma. I remember, uh, and I've shared this before in fellowship, and this is one of those incidents in my life that really, I mean, it was a little heartbreaking at the time. And I think back on it, and it, it just, you know, saddens me. But my mother had advanced cancer. And, um, you know, I was around this dogmatic teaching, and I was, you know, teaching dogmatically. I thought I was the good Christian. And my mother came to me. She shared with me something. She said, you know, she was in the process of dying. And she looked at me. She said, John, I'm afraid. I didn't have anything to say to her. That's a big deal. I mean, the word that I needed wasn't there because I was so wrapped up in doctrine. And I wasn't thinking about healing or assuaging or blessing or encouraging that those had gotten right past me in my teaching. The reason that we have the word is so that we can bless people with it. The reason we have the Holy Spirit is that every situation is different, and we have God's flexibility right there when we're talking to people. A word fitly spoken. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I, I think this is what defines a true church. That is a spirit-filled church from just a Bible-thumping church, a dogmatic church. John chapter 6, look in verse 63. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. See, the Spirit is eternally relevant. Relevant. We receive the word, we receive the truth in any given situation by grace. When God reveals something to us, it is a gift. It's a blessing. Isn't that something? Every good gift comes from the Father of lights, right? comes from the Father of lights that God gives to us. And we just say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. If you're in a situation where you don't know the right thing to do, what should you do? Ask. Say, God, I don't know what to say here. And God will share it with you. The Bible says if a man lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask of God. Let him ask of God. All truth is through grace. And all truth is received by faith, by faith. And this is the only way. Go to James chapter 1. 
James chapter 1. That's why self-glory is such a, an anathema to this whole process. You go to God with humility and say, God, I need. And God says, okay, and I receive it. And then if I try to derive some kind of self-glory out of it, I break the whole process. <laughs> That's the tragedy in so many of these ministries out there who are, look at me, look at me. You're just uh, defying the whole process. James chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you that can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I thought that was really interesting, that word that's planted in you. Remember, Jesus referred to God as the husbandman, and he was the vine, right? And that word is planted in us. It's implanted in us, and it grows. It's a great figure, right? And this is grace, grace. It's grace. Uh, Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And his disciples came to him and said, and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees are offended by what, uh, when they heard this? And he replied, now listen to this, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. How about that? So the word, The true word, the truth, is planted in our souls. Everything that is not properly planted, that comes from God, is rooted up. These Pharisees were offended, and they were offended at the truth. And Jesus told the disciples, everything that was not of God will be rooted up. How often do we blame the world for the lies that we believe? Isn't that something? It's not that which goeth into a man, it's that which cometh out of a man. Oftentimes, the lies that we believe come from within, right? And oftentimes, the outward lies that we hear simply confirm to us what we already have inwardly in suspicion or belief. Our old man is what? A liar. (laughs) The old man is a liar. He is all wrapped up in self-justification. He will always lie to you. When the Bible says the flesh profiteth nothing, that's what it means. There is nothing good that's going to come from your old man. It will lie to you. And we need to identify his language and his voice. Right? The old man will always seek to justify himself. Will always seek to excuse and pardon himself will always seek to explain himself. Oftentimes, he will always seek to condemn himself or promote himself or boast about himself or avenge himself. And since he's a liar, to cloak himself. How about that? He's he's an evasive son of a gun. One of the great works of the Holy Spirit is to give us that internal witness of God. And it's this internal witness that dismantles that old sinful nature and its lies. I think that's amazing, isn't it? I think that's fascinating. 
When we are dealing in this world, we are dealing with narratives and myths. Narratives and myths. So what is a narrative? A narrative is a story. When a person goes through life, he is confronted with a series of circumstances and facts. And they either, in his memory, are stories or narratives, or he puts them into the facts and circumstances in, in the sense of stories and narratives, or somebody comes along and supplies them with a prefab, ready-made lie to fit his circumstances. And I think we're watching this around us, right? People are convinced in our culture that trans people and LGBTQ people are being persecuted and killed when the facts just don't back them up. It's a lie. It's a myth. We've already talked about that, that this idea that there is systemic racism against black people in this country It's a myth. The facts don't back it up. These are false narratives. What happens is a person goes through a tragic or an emotionally harrowing experience, and we walk away from it with a story, a narrative of what happened. And oftentimes the narrative changes as life goes on. These are things that we have to keep in mind here. The old nature will always adjust the facts to get the optimal damage, right, out of the circumstances. That's why self-testimony, whenever I hear people bearing witness of themselves, the red flags go up. You know, they've been using this phrase virtue signaling recently, and, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good term, virtue signaling. Look at me, I'm such a victim. Look at my victimhood. You know, I have a ton more respect for somebody who actually went through something tragic or harrowing and keeps it to himself and maybe reveals it to somebody in, in, you know, in a very private conversation. But when I hear people going around demonstrating how tragic their life is, I'm sorry, but I've, I start off from the default position that eh, it probably wasn't all that bad. Do you understand what I'm saying? People like to boast and people like to exaggerate their boasting. The thing to keep in mind here is that when a person finally turns to the Lord, it's these self-stories, these self-narratives that are oftentimes the biggest impediments to faith. And they're the things that have got to go away if you are going to grow with God. You can't maintain false narratives and have a life with God. It doesn't work that way. But you have Christian churches out there that seem to coddle these narratives and you and you you just are forced to understand that these aren't spiritual churches. These are carnal churches. If they were spiritual churches, that spirit would insist that these narratives fall by the wayside. These are the voices of error. And we need to pray that God leads us through these narratives in our own lives, these stories in our own lives, and gets us honest about them. You know, I, I would hear people, you know, we'd have our own testimonies on um, you know, how we came to the word. And I remember when I was a new Christian and boy, my testimony was great. I would, I would exaggerate everything. It was awesome. But you know, the more mature I became as a Christian, my self testimony became much more humble. <laughs> I was blowing things out of proportion. Why? To get the, you know, the benefit of somebody saying, wow, you've come through a lot. But the truth is what I went through wasn't all that bad. 
I'm, I mean, relatively, people have gone through a lot worse. So it's just a little integrity. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 21, 321. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. See, it's not about my own righteousness. It's a righteousness from God. This righteousness from God comes from faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Where's your boasting in that? Did you do anything for that for you? No, it's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? Well, of course not. I mean, do people observe the law and then walk away and go, look at how great I observed that law? No, but on faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So there is no self-glory in faith. Does that make sense to everybody? You can't derive self-glory if you're actually believing God. If you believe the testimony of the scripture, you believe that you are dead in trespasses and sins without God and without hope in this world, that there was nothing good going on for you and that God rescued you from that. And everything that's good in your life now is because of what God did in Christ in you. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 10 and look in one Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse one. It says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but am bold, went away. What does this mean? That means that his detractors, the people who were in Corinth, they were saying, you know, Paul, he's he talks real big when he's away from us. But when he's with us, he's very timid. And so Paul is kind of tongue in cheek saying, I'm the Paul who, when I'm away from you, talk real big. But when with you and, and speaking to you in meekness, right? In verse 2, he says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So in other words, he had his these leaders in Corinth, and they were judging him after the flesh. It was like, yeah, he talks a big talk, but he's pretty meek. And Paul's like, uh, you got the wrong Paul here. Verse 3, for though we live in the world, we do not. Not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Demolish strongholds. What are strongholds? It's those areas in people's lives where the flesh is strong, where the sinful nature is strong. Verse 5, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's a true spiritual church. 
is a church that has abandoned all the pretensions, all the fleshly arguments, and has led captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And that's what we're interested in here, folks. And I think we we do it. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. But that's what our little bitty ministry does. Because a little bitty ministry by the Spirit is more powerful than a colossal church without. Remember that? Martin Luther said that? Martin Luther said that a layman armed with Scripture is more powerful than Pope or Prince that isn't. Well, it's the same here. Go to First John chapter 5. First John 5. And look in verse 5. It says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. How about that? It is the Spirit that testifies because it is the Spirit that is the truth. And what we read earlier, it's the Spirit that quickeneth or maketh alive the flesh profits nothing. Go to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. You know, and that's the glorious thing about this walk by the Spirit. You know, a brand new believer can walk by the Spirit. Will we all agree on that? It's just like, you know, a, a brand new baby has life in itself and can live. Imagine that. <laughs> a brand new baby can live. Well, a brand new Christian baby can live too because the life is in the spirit. We attach way too much significance to maturity if our sense is attached to maturity in the flesh, right? Age, experience, all these other things. Those are helpful if your primary motivation, your primary, uh, you know, counselor is the Holy Spirit within you. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you see the theme here? It's grace. It's grace. This is, you know, we've talked about this in this fellowship before. People use this notion of grace as a license to sin. That's not what it is. Grace is the ability to receive from God. That's grace. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who does the justifying. Doesn't that make sense? So if somebody comes along and condemns you and points their finger and says, you're no good, guess what? It doesn't matter. The flesh profits nothing. God's word, the voice of truth, is all that counts. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also doing what? Interceding for you. Interceding for you. So you've got God and Christ who are totally back in your life. Who cares if somebody condemns you? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Will those separate you from God's love? As it is written, for your sake we face death. All the day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the recipe for being able to stand through adversity, through persecution, that no matter what the devil throws at you, nothing can separate you from God through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Now, are these just words on a page to you? Is this just a motivational speech that I'm giving you here? I hope not. These are words of the Spirit, and they are life. They are life. Go to 2 Peter. We'll end up here in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. Look at verse 3. His, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Isn't that beautiful? That's how we escape the pollution in this world. Now, it does help periodically to spend some time looking into what the world is, you know, about, (laughs) right? If they're attacking the church, we certainly should know a little bit about how the world is attacking the church. But we should be able, most importantly, we should speak the truth in boldness, that it's the light that dispels the darkness. When we speak the truth by the Spirit, that truth is illuminating. It will illuminate the darkness. Does that make sense, everybody? That's what we have to occupy our thoughts with, our minds with, our our preaching with. All right? So that's what I wanted to share today. Let me go ahead and finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. Father, we thank you for our ministry, our fellowship. Father, that we can, each one of us, that make up this ministry, just be a a servant filled with grace, receiving from you. Now, Father, that your power and your presence and your love, that, Father, you are just pouring it out to us in boatfuls. And that, Father, that we uh, are just able to walk in that spiritual prosperity. So I thank you for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.
sling and the stone Surrounded by the sound of a thousand warriors Shaking in their armor Wishing they'd have had the strength to stand But the giants call 